Ruth chapter number one. Thank you to all of you who minister to us musically. Thank you to all of you who minister to us in so many other ways. All of the uh, efforts and labor that were put into planning and preparing and executing for yesterday's wedding. You do so much. Let's go ahead and stand this morning. And once again, our portion will be the entirety of the first chapter. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of the wife Naomi, the name of his two sons Malon and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left and her two sons. They took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Kilion died also both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her. They went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters, why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have an husband. If I should say, I have hope, if I should have an husband also tonight, and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for if it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. She said, Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. And they too went until they came to Bethlehem, Judah, or Bethlehem. And it came to pass, when they were come to Bethlehem, that all the city was moved about them, and they said, Is this Naomi? She said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, the Lord hath brought me home again empty. 
Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. And let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray your blessing upon the preaching of your word this day for the sake of you and your people. Father, that you would be honored in that your word is addressed faithfully, truthfully, that it would not be edited or manipulated to achieve a wrong point. And then, Father, that your people would be blessed by what you say to them in your word. That they would be instructed and encouraged and perhaps, if necessary, rebuked. That your wisdom and insight would be imparted to us and that we would have great faith in who you are. Bless, please, then, the preaching this day in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Well, once more to the first chapter of Ruth this morning. This chapter that is really laying the foundation for, of course, what is going to be the ultimate lesson of the book of Ruth. But I thought about... Common criticism that the Bible receives, even among the church anymore, is that it is irrelevant. Relevance has become a big thing. There are even churches called relevant church. Attempts to figure out a way to make worship more palatable, I suppose, to the modern generation of people. And certainly the Bible is an old book. In one sense, it is an eternal book. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Which if the Bible really, I'm not questioning it, but if the Bible really did exist before the world did exist, then events to us that are very old had not even yet begun to happen when the Bible was recorded. Certainly from our perspective, it deals with old cultures, old customs. We've yet to get to the place in the book of Ruth where taking off one shoe is a form of agreeing to terms of a contract. But to think that these books are in some way irrelevant is to completely miss what is going on. What is possibly more relevant than addressing how you will make your living? What is more relevant than than thinking through how you're going to earn your money to get your bread. And this is a story, folks, that is set not accidentally with people who live in the land that is known as the house of bread. 
and that the story has its beginnings in the absence of bread, an economic downturn. What could be more relevant for God's people than to think about their lives in terms of economics? Or how is it possibly irrelevant to not make note that the decisions that we make, whether they be bad or good, have tremendous consequences? Yesterday we had a wedding. What a momentous event. Is there anything in our lives apart from our trusting Christ that is going to have a bigger impact upon the rest of our lives and our marriages? How is thinking about the decisions that people made and the way they viewed God in light of those decisions and the way God reacted to those decisions, how could that possibly ever even if it's a book as old as Ruth is, how could it ever be dismissed as being irrelevant? The decisions that we make matter. The things that we do have consequences. And we live with those consequences. And sometimes our children live with those consequences. To think of any Bible book, to think of any dimension of the scripture as being old and outdated is to completely miss the point. We, just like Elimelech and Naomi, sometimes make willful conscious decisions. They made the decision to move to Moab. Whether it was a good decision or a bad decision, that's not the point. They made the decision to move. That decision led to other decisions. Because they made a direct decision to move to the land of Moab, they ended up with two Moabite daughters-in-law. Actions have consequences. Ideas have consequences. So rather than just look at something like the book of Ruth as a very quaint story, which I don't think you would, or a very old and outdated story, which I hope you never would, the book of Ruth is very relevant We are still making the same kind of decisions that Elimelech and Naomi made, and we're making them on the same kinds of bases. We're making them in light of fundamentals of life. Where will we live? How will we live? What will we do while we live? What will the shape of my life be? And we make those decisions, and I will argue this morning, we make them freely, And we live with the consequences. And although we will be far from getting to the end of the book this morning, part of the message of the book of of Ruth is the way God uses our actions and decisions to bring about his desired ends. But mostly this morning, we will confine ourselves once again to the events of Ruth chapter 1. And let's walk through them from yet this perspective. We've given some attention to the fact that I would argue and would argue and would continue to argue that Naomi is the target audience for the book of Ruth. It is about Ruth. It is about Boaz. It is ultimately about redemption. But it is to Naomi. 
And everything that happens in the book of Ruth, all four chapters, is ultimately brought back to Naomi and how it affected Naomi and how she responded to it. And then we talked last week about the fact that the book of Ruth is oriented around this idea of returning, of turning back. That everybody is in a position of turning. This morning we will look at it from from yet another perspective. In the first five verses, which describe for us the departure of Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons from the land of Bethlehem, Judah, the house of bread, to the land of Moab, we will note that God does not exempt his people from suffering, doubt, or uncertainty. God does not exempt us from suffering, doubt, and uncertainty. And we can talk forever about how much of this suffering is self-inflicted. And I think that Elimelech bears the brunt of the responsibility as the male head of his household. Naomi certainly is living with the consequences at the very least of the decisions that her husband has made as do their two sons. But that is really in some ways incidental. Folks, you could make the argument that there is a sense in which all human suffering is self-inflicted. It was two human beings who fell in the Garden of Eden. It was two human beings who brought the world of sin crashing down upon us. And we are not just touching upon Adam and Eve's sin. We are included in his suffering. When God said to Adam, by the sweat of thy brow thou shalt earn thy bread. That is passed on to every generation of worker. And we will sweat physically or we will sweat mentally or we will sweat emotionally. But we will labor in this world because of Adam's sin. When God said to Eve that she would travail in childbirth, Eve is not the only woman who travailed in childbirth. All of you ladies did. All suffer. And all suffering is to some extent then self-inflicted. That is neither here nor there. When God touched upon the fact that there would be potential conflict in that marriage between Adam and Eve, the perfect man and woman, with the perfect marriage, created, crafted for each other. All relationships are marred by sin. And there's always enough blame to go around. And this suffering is not imaginary, folks. It is very real. There was a genuine famine in the land. Somebody has pointed out that there is no miracle of healing in the book of Ruth. Elimelech died, Malan and Killian died, and they died, and they stayed dead. And there is grief, verse number 14, they lifted up their voice and wept again. Not to mention the grief that is inferred from the death of a husband and two sons. Imagine that. 
grief that Naomi must have experienced to bury all of the men in her life in a span of 10 years. So no, folks, God will not exempt you from suffering, from doubts, from uncertainty. If we want those kinds of actions from Him, they will not be forthcoming. And in fact, folks, those doubts and those sufferings become the context for our decision-making. Which leads me to this. Secondly, God permits His people to make bad decisions or flawed decisions. In the presence of a famine, suffering, they made a deliberate decision to go to Moab to get food. The implication is that there was food in Moab that there wasn't in Bethlehem, Judah. And we've talked about this, folks. We will not go back, and I will not go back over that ground again, but this famine is not just a natural disaster or a bad harvest. It is a judgment. God had predicted that the disobedience of his covenant people would be met with these kinds of disasters. So why is there food in Moab but not in the house of bread? Judgment. And by the way, were we just to come to the text and ask questions, which I think is legitimate, the text tells us what people did, but it doesn't tell us all that might have influenced the story. Is it true that there was no bread in Judah? How many people stayed in Bethlehem, Judah? We don't know. How many people left? We don't know. This is a story of one family. And I don't know if you've thought this yet. I don't know if you've connected, and I'm not trying to insult you, but I don't know if you've connected these dots. How is it that their wealthy relative Boaz doesn't doesn't come into play until they return? Why doesn't the story flow like this? Now there's a famine in the land and Elimelech said to Naomi, I hate to do this, but I'm going to go to our close relative Boaz and ask him for some help. For whatever reason, folks, under whatever existed, however you want to think about it, they went to Moab And they moved to Moab for the same kind of reasons that we give today. Again, turning back to the subject of relevance. Why are you moving to Moab? Well, there's food in Moab. Why are you moving here? Well, there's something that I want there that I don't have here. And I'm not trying to insert some commercial for staying in Omaha, Nebraska, and Westwood Heights Baptist Church. I'm saying these are the things that move us. I want something somewhere else. These are the kind of things that drive our decisions. People argue for these kinds of decisions. They say that there are no options or they don't like the options that do exist. So people make decisions. 
In the case of Elimelech and Naomi, their decision was a decision that was made in clear contradiction to the teaching of Scripture. So that if you were to approach me after the service this morning, you know, in spite of everything you said, preacher, I am moving to fill in the blank. I could not make the same argument that it is a sinful move like I can about Elimelech's move to Moab. Moab was prohibited territory, folks. They weren't supposed to go. The very existence of Moab sends him up to be an enemy. The firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab, the same as the father of the Moabites unto this day. These were illegitimate children conceived through incest. These were people who knew the history of Balaam and Israel's relationship with the Moabites. They knew that Moab was God's enemy, that he had declared it to be so. And yet they went anyway. My point simply being this, God allows us to suffer in this world. And God allows us to make flawed decisions in this world. I think you know me well enough, folks, to know that I would argue that God is sovereign, that he that sits in the heavens does whatever he pleases. And I made reference in adult Sunday school to Isaiah 43, in which he said he created Israel. He said the same thing about Cyrus in Isaiah 45, that he had created him as well. That God works for his agenda and his purposes. But that does not mean we are mere machines. You have a mind. You have the ability to reason. You have a will. You have a Bible filled with Bible information sitting in your lap or held in the palm of your hand. You have divine insights. You have examples from history. But at the end of the day, folks, I would stand on this. For the most part, God is going to let you do whatever it is you want to do. And it's a very hard thing for us to get to the place where we stand up and go, you know why I did that? I did it because I wanted to. It was just my will to do it. God could have stopped Adam and Eve from eating the forbidden fruit, but he did not. He could have stopped Moses from killing the Egyptian, but he did not. He could have stopped Nadab and Abihu from offering strange fire, and he did not. He could have stopped Moses from striking the rock twice, and he did not. He could have stopped David and Bathsheba, but he did not. I think you can safely conclude that he probably isn't going to stop you. That if you're really determined to do something that falls within the limits of your nature, right? you're probably not going to be able to walk to the moon, not because God isn't going to stop you, but because humans can't walk to the moon. But we live in a world, folks, where God allows us to suffer, even his own people, 
and we live in a world in which God allows people to make their own decisions. And this is the great urgency, isn't it? I remember being a teenager thinking about those days when I could make my own decisions. And my parents were not brutes or barbarians by any stretch of the imagination. But there was in me and all of my, I didn't know anybody who wasn't like this when we were 16 and 17 years old. We wanted our independence. We wanted driver's licenses and cars. And we talked about getting apartments so that we could live on our own and nobody was going to tell us what to do. And we could do whatever we want. And now I've reached the place where I just don't want to do anything. That's where I am. I can do anything I want. What do you do? Nothing. I am, I am operating on the minimum amount that I can do mode. And miraculously enough, I find that I still cause all kinds of trouble just doing that. So, so as we look at this book, folks, we note that God does not relieve or eliminate human suffering in this world. He allows people to suffer. And he allows people to make choices. And we make choices, lots of choices. I know I've told this a thousand times, but I remember sitting in 10th grade in a sociology class and the sociology teacher explained to us that life is about decisions, making decisions. And she was absolutely right. And then being in Bible college and sitting in a sermon and Jack Hiles going, life is about making decisions. Let God make as many for you as he can. And he was absolutely right. But God is going to let you make your own decisions. Thirdly, as we look through this text, we notice that God is always faithful to his word. God is always faithful to his word. And here's what I'm getting at. Generally speaking, broadly speaking, Decisions that we are free to make that are contrary to his will are going to result in human suffering. Because God is always going to be faithful to his word. God is going to operate along these lines. Look, here's what you shouldn't do. And even here's why you shouldn't do it. And then we go, okay, taken. I've made a note, going to do it anyway. Now what's God going to do? Well, let's be realistic, folks. Lots of us know parents who this is what they're going to do. Now they're going to move heaven and earth to spare the child the consequences of that decision. But that is not what God does. God goes, here's what you should do. Here's why you should do it. And if you don't do that, then it's probably not going to go well for you and you're going to have to live with that. And so not only do we get to make our own decisions, folks, we get to live with the consequences of those decisions. And we know this generally. We know this broadly. This is clear from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap, which isn't simply about money. He that soweth to the flesh. It's the way life works. <clears throat> On the other hand, folks, decisions that are consistent with his will 
generally will have pleasant results because God is faithful to his word. But I would be remiss if I did not include what is the real issue or the point of contention on our part, and that is the matter of timing. The book of Hebrews says about Moses that he rejected the pleasures of sin for a season. So bad decisions come off acting, appearing like good decisions in the short term. And good decisions often come across as looking like bad ideas in the short term. And part of our problem, folks, is failing to grasp regularly that God doesn't operate in any kind of sense of time. So that when God says, you know, bad decisions have bad consequences, and we go, well, I got away with it today. Or we go, good decisions have good consequences. We go, well, it didn't look like it today. God is not really operating in that time frame. So that God can make a, God can make a comment about a man. This is what's going to happen to you. And 200 years later, God can write. Now, it came to be fulfilled what I said about that guy. 200 years. Or in the case of Israel, God can say, you know, if you do these kinds of things, they're going to have bad consequences. And centuries later, the Babylonians are at the gate. And what is the general attitude of Israel? We didn't do anything to deserve this. Turn, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Beginning in verse number 11. For this commandment, Deuteronomy 30 and verse 11. This commandment which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. I am not playing games with you, God says. I'm not trying to trick you or trap you. This isn't some kind of a puzzle. It is not in heaven that thou shouldest say who shall go up for us to heaven to bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say who shall go over the sea for us and bring it into us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. I'm putting it right here in front of you. It is, it is right on the, you're sitting at the table and it is right on the plate on the table. Verse number 15, see, I have set before thee this day life and good and death and evil. And that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply. And the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. But if thine heart turn away, so that thou wilt not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that ye shall surely perish 
and that ye shall not prolong your days upon the land whither thou passest over Jordan to go to possess it. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice, and that thou mayest cleave unto him, for he is thy life and the length of thy days, that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord swore unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. God is always faithful to his word, both the positive and the negative, both the good and the bad, both the promise of life and the promise of death and the promise of blessing and the promise of judgment. And actually, folks, as we work our way through the book of Ruth, we note that Naomi's family is on the receiving end of both of those. This is a family that experienced death, and we don't know specifically what it was that was the death of Elimelech and Malan and Killian. But God's word doesn't just promise judgment, it promises blessing and provision, and they enjoyed, verses 6 and 7, the continuity of the covenant people. God had provided for his people bread in the land. It is one of the mercies and kindnesses of God, folks, that he tells us this. Just like a parent would instruct their child Just like, just like a faithful parent would instruct their child as to what is expected and what the consequences will be. Which, by the way, you moms and dads ought to happen, and then you need to follow through. Right? Don't, make, don't parent by making idle threats. God doesn't. In fact, Paul points out in Romans 5.20 that the whole point of the law of Romans 5.20 and 21, that the, the whole point of the law was to magnify sin, was to kind of bring it under the microscope so that we could see how bad our rebellion really was. And then points out that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound because God is faithful to his word. So God allows us to suffer and it is a suffering world. The, the overarching existence of the world in which we live is one of pain and suffering and sin. And God allows us to make our own decisions, even if they're bad decisions. But God is faithful to his word. Make a bad decision, there will be a bad consequence. Make a good decision, there will be a good consequence. You can bank on that what I am not going to reveal to you is the timing. But finally, and I'm just really trying to extract most of these points from the first chapter of Ruth. In retrospect, because it is much easier for us to see backwards than it is to see forwards. The Lord lets his people see his hand in their suffering. 
It is not simply reduced to some kind of accidental happenstance. I can't explain it. This is verses 19 through 22. Right? When Naomi went back to the city, everybody said, Naomi, is that you? And she said, you got to stop calling me. No, you got to stop calling me pleasant. It's not pleasant anymore. It's not pleasant anymore. Don't call me that. And there is all that Hebrew culture and Hebrew mentality in that, folks, that, that names were so rich with meaning. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Names are rich with meaning in the Hebrew mind. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Why should I call you bitter? Because the hand of the Lord is against me. Because this is the hand of the Lord. This is how she describes it. The Almighty, verse number 20, hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full. The Lord brought me home again empty. Why would you call me pleasant? Why would you call me pleasant? There's nothing pleasant about this. And we see the same thing in the way she talks to her daughters-in-law. I wish that God would be merciful to you, but he is out to get me. We talked about that last week. Now this, folks, right, and, and I, I want to deal, try and deal as faithfully with this as I can. This is a testimony to the reality of Naomi's faith. This is a testimony to the reality of Naomi's faith. Tell me about Jehovah. He doesn't like me very much. But he is still my God. Tell me about Jehovah. I think he's out to get me, but he is still my God. That's what Job said. Though he should slay me, yet will I trust in him. One of the things, folks, that makes believing people different from unbelieving people is not that believing people don't suffer. It is that they don't renounce God when they do they're able to see it as the hand of the Lord. But here is what Ruth or Naomi does not yet see. Right? She does not yet see the goodness and kindness of the Lord in these events. Part of it she doesn't see because it hasn't unfolded in her life yet. That's chapter 2, 3 and most of chapter 4. And part of it she doesn't see because it's 150 years beyond her lifetime and that's the genealogy at the end of chapter 4. God is faithful to his word but God's timing is not our timing. And for this reason, folks, for this reason, this is why it is critical for us to trust him and to act in obedient faith. This is why. Because it, it, it's, it just does, it's just not like a hammer hitting a nail. A hammer hits a nail and it goes right in and 
you know, two or three blows and you've put it in the wood and you can see the consequence. It just doesn't work like that with the Lord. He says, bad decisions have bad consequences. Faithful decisions have good consequences. Go out and make good decisions. You will enjoy the benefit, the blessing of the Lord that maketh rich and he addeth no sorrow with it. So you are, folks, a decision maker. And you have a Bible and the Spirit of God dwelling in you. You have a long heritage and history of the decisions that people have made and the results of them. You have a long testimony to the faithfulness of the Lord and the kindness that he shows to his people. You have seen, as James tells us, the end of the Lord in the life of Job, that he is full of pity. And Paul tells us in Romans 8.28, that precious verse, that we know that all things work together for good. Work together. Synergy is literally the Greek word. The sum is greater than its parts. So make God-honoring decisions, folks, out of faith. Do what God tells. Let's pray. Father.